0: I encourage you to take your Bible this morning and uh, turn with me to the book of Daniel. If you don't have one, there is one provided there in the pew in front of you. book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 3. We've been making our way through this book, and again, for those of you who are our guests this morning, uh, we're making our way verse by verse through the book of Daniel in an attempt to look at Daniel from just a, 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 a bare-context interpretation. Uh, the book of Daniel, again, is one of those books that's oftentimes shrouded in mystery and sometimes shrouded in allegory. But we want to just look and see, what is God speaking to us uh, through the book of Daniel? And the first question that we have to ask when we're asking what God is speaking to us through the book of Daniel is, what was God speaking to Daniel's people in the time that he wrote this book? What was he saying to them? Because that is the important message of context. What was God saying to the people to whom and in the time in which this book was written? And so we've made our way here, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we look at chapter 3 this morning. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter uh, and, as we stand this morning, but I am going to read a portion, and then we'll go back and we're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. So if you'll stand with me, Daniel chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 15 excuse me, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace, of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up you can be seated. Daniel chapter 3 is a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's one of those passages that for most of us, if we grew up in church, uh, whether that was going every week or perhaps just going to vacation Bible school a few times a year, uh, the the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace is one of those stories that is oftentimes told in Sunday school classes over and over again. Uh, But I want us again to remember that as we've gone through the book of Daniel so far, The theme that we're seeing throughout the book of Daniel, despite the fact that Daniel and his three friends do some things that seem very heroic and grandiose, the theme of the book of Daniel is not prophecy, is not future fulfillment. The theme of the book of Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of God. And we see God's sovereignty all throughout the book of Daniel and even more so here as we come to chapter 3. Now, it's interesting what's happening here in chapter 3. Because we just came out of Daniel in chapter 2 interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And you remember that dream, that Nebuchadnezzar dream, that he saw this great statue with a head of gold and, and a body of brass, and then it continued on down to iron and clay in the feet. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the gold of the head stood for him and for the nation of Babylon because of its greatness and its riches and its power. But you remember ultimately in that dream, that entire statue was crushed by a rock that was cut without hands, a rock that symbolized the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ when he would come to this earth and he would establish his kingdom uh, through his death, burial, and his resurrection. So basically what God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar was, I have put you in a position of power. I have given you great authority. I've given you great wealth and, and wisdom, but your kingdom will not last forever. Now that's one thing that a king does not want to hear. No king in his right mind wants someone to come in and say, you're a great king. Look at all the wonderful things that you have, but it's not going to last forever. No, a king wants to believe, even though he, humanly speaking, he knows he's not going to live forever, but a king wants to believe that his kingdom will last as long as he does, as long as he is on the face of the earth. So I want you to notice here in the opening, chapter, or in the opening verses of chapter 3, that we have an improper decree that Nebuchadnezzar gives. Look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now if you again harken back to his dream, remember there was this great statue with the head of gold. Apparently Nebuchadnezzar had decided that he did not like what God was saying to him through that dream. He did not like Daniel's interpretation, and so now he's decided that he's going to reconstruct, in a sense, this image that he saw in the dream. It told us in that dream that it was this great giant statue, and in fact, this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar builds. Sixty cubits tall by six cubits wide means that this statue was some 90 feet tall and about nine feet wide. This is a giant figure that Nebuchadnezzar is building, and it says that it's gold, it's covered in gold. And so it's not solid gold. Obviously, it would be far too much gold for it to be solid, but it was a figure that was built and then covered in gold, but no less impressive. You think about this, 90 feet tall. This is almost eight stories tall and a statue, and then nine feet wide. And it was set in a place of prominence. That word dura means uh, an area that is surrounded or enclosed by a wall. And so most scholars believe that it was kind of in the plains outside of Babylon, and it was a place where no matter where you were in that region, you would be able to look and see this figure exalted up on this platform, this gold figure, 90 feet tall, standing there in the midst of the nation of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar set this up because he did not want to submit himself to the truth of what God's Word says. Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense here, was attempting to unify the empire, to bring all the people together and to establish his own authority here as the king and the ruler and the one who would endure. Verses 2 down through the next few verses tell us of what this period of time looked like. Verse 2 tells us that the king set word to assemble the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the providences to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he calls for everyone to come together. Now remember... He's calling all the different classes of officials there. These are the the chief representatives, the military commanders, the civil administrators, um, the advisors to the king. These are the treasurers, the lawgivers, then the magistrates, the one who would oversee how the law was issued. And all the rulers of the provinces are assembled here together. So there's people from all ranks of authority, all positions and all locations all gathered here before this image. Now, remember Babylon and the nation of Babylon had conquered many different lands. Uh, that's the reason that Daniel and his friends were there, because Babylon had even spread into the nation of Israel and conquered Israel and brought exiles there to Babylon. And they had done this all across of, of Southeast Asia and Asia Minor in those regions. So these were people who were assembled from all of these different provinces. They had all come and to gather in Babylon to see what Nebuchadnezzar wanted them there for. And as they arrived, here they find this great statue that Nebuchadnezzar has erected. And they're all standing there. You can imagine this, this seemingly mass of humanity all gathered together here. And the scripture doesn't really tell us that they even knew why they were coming. They didn't really know what was happening until they got there. And in verse 4, it tells us that the herald loudly proclaimed, And the herald was the one who would speak on behalf of the king. He's the one who would stand up and proclaim the king's message. And he says this, To you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Here, the true purpose is revealed the king's herald declares that as the music begins to play, then all of these people are to fall down and worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar has erected. You see, this image was not just an attempt for Nebuchadnezzar to set himself up politically as a great leader. It was not just a sign to say, look at here, a at great king Nebuchadnezzar and all that he's conquered. Let's, let's, let's respect him and pay homage to him for all that he's done for the nation of Babylon. No, Nebuchadnezzar has decided it was not enough just to be a great king. He also wants to be a great god. He wants to be worshipped as all the other gods are. So now he's set up this great statue, and they're to fall down. When the music begins to play, he says, every one of you are to fall down and to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar has established. And continue to verse 6. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, we can see Nebuchadnezzar's heart here and that he desires what only belongs to God. But we can also see that Nebuchadnezzar is somewhat insecure here, right? Because if you have to tell people, fall down and worship me, but if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Seems, seems to take a little bit away of the, of the normalcy of just saying, hey, look at how great I am. You should worship me because of how great I am. No, I'm going to tell you, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to throw you in to a blazing furnace. Look at verse 7. Therefore, at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, trigon, psaltery, bag pop, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image. That Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. There's a lot that we can see here in this passage. Nebuchadnezzar has established himself as a god. He's establishing himself as one to be worshipped. God had already told him through his dream that there's only one who's to be worshipped, and that's Christ, the one who would come and establish a kingdom above all kingdoms, the one who would destroy every other earthly kingdom that had existed the one who would come and establish a kingdom that would spread to the furthest regions of the earth. And it was a kingdom built without hands, a kingdom that could not be destroyed, overpowered, overthrown, ever be defeated. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to have any hear of it. So he's trying to establish his own kingdom, his own deitieship, and erecting this image and telling that you must fall down and worship this image. He's establishing a new religion for the nation of Babylon. And what's interesting about this as you think about all of these people gathered together, and again, we don't have a specific number, but when it talks about the fact that these are people of, of every tribe and tongue and nation and people, this is really all the known world at that time that he had conquered. And they're all gathered here. Not, not Obviously not all of the people, but representatives from all of these nations are gathered here before Nebuchadnezzar. And the music begins to play. And as soon as the music begins to play, the people all fall down and begin to worship this image. Sinclair Ferguson pointed out in his commentary that there's a couple of things that we should note before we move on here. Number one is that blasphemy can be disguised by the trappings of religion. Here these people seem to be just worshiping, right? And But they're worshiping a false deity. They're worshiping a false god because Nebuchadnezzar is not God. But, but they have all of the things that go along with worship, right? They have all the things that seem to be what worship looks like. They have all the instruments. They have something they're looking to. They have all the people gathered together, and they're all responding accordingly. But the question is, is who is the one who is receiving the glory here? Because that's what true worship is all about. True worship is not about us. True worship is about who are we worshiping. And that's where the connection comes in. Because sometimes we can gather together, a church can even gather together, and they can sing songs that have God's name in them, but not actually yet be worshiping God. They can have all the music, all the trappings of religion, but if they're not actually worshiping God, then they're blaspheming. And sad to say, oftentimes people worship themselves more than they worship God. Their hearts are bent more toward what I need or what I want than what does God want and what does God deserve. Ferguson also said that the dangers of assuming that what is really important about worship is its aesthetic effects. There was a lot of things happening here. We have to understand that emotionalism and aesthetics are not what makes true worship. There are times when those things happen. I'm not saying that, that our, our spiritual life is completely devoid or separated from emotions. There are times when we see God move in a powerful way and it affects us emotionally. But it is not just because we are moved emotionally that means that God is actually working. How many of you, some of you in this room will remember, some of you are far too young to remember this, but have you guys remember when the Beatles came to America? Some of you have seen the video, you weren't alive to see it, but you've seen the video. And they went to the Ed Sullivan show, right? And he walks out, and he says, introducing the Beatles. And everybody in the room went, yay, yay. No, they didn't, right? The, the, the whole room just exploded. People screaming their heads off, people passing out, right? Now, is that is that worship? In a sense, it is. But is it true worship? No. Were there people there who emotionally moved? Yes. I mean, they're they're emotionally moved. I mean, they're screaming and passing out on the floor. They're so excited and filled with emotion. But just because they're filled with emotion does not mean that they're worshiping the true God. And sad to say, oftentimes when you talk to people about what worship looks like, the number one thing when you say, well, well, what did you think about the music? Oh, it's like, well, it made me feel really good. Oh, well, it was just, it was such an emotion there. And again, don't don't hear me incorrectly this morning. I'm not saying that as we sing songs that we aren't moved. Because just even as we sang this morning, and we sang that song, yet not I, but Christ through me, there's something about that that moves us, right? We think about what Christ has done for us. But the emotion, again, is not just about what it's doing for me. The emotion is about remembering what Christ has done on our behalf and glorifying and honoring Him. And so all of these people were moved emotionally here as they stood before Nebuchadnezzar. And that emotion came from a lot of different places. It came from all of the music. It came from all of the people. It came from all of them kind of being influenced by what was happening around them. And then they all fell down and worshiped the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It reminded me of my seventh grade history teacher who told us a story of how her grandmother was alive um, as Hitler began to rise to power in the 1930s. And her grandmother and her best friend wanted to go and hear Hitler at this place where he was speaking, not too far from where they lived. And their mother had forbade them to go, said, no, you're not going. You know, we don't agree with him. We don't like what he's saying. You cannot go and listen to him. And so being teenagers, they did what teenagers did. They, they went, did it anyway. And she said she remembers her grandmother telling the story that they went to hear Hitler speak at this event. Now, again, they walked into this event, not agreeing with anything that he had to say, not agreeing with anything that he stood for. It was more just out of morbid curiosity because of his great rise to power. But she said before they knew it, by the end of that time, that they were standing up and throwing up the hand salute and saying Heil Hitler alongside of all the other people who were gathered there. Why? It was just the pure emotionalism of it. It was all the other people around. It was the it was the pressure of the world pushing down on them, and they didn't want to be the only ones in that group who were not going along with the crowd. And there's something to be considered there. That oftentimes the world is going to talk, call us to do something. It's going to pressure us to do something. It's going to push us in a direction, and we have to come to the point in our life where we have to say, okay, am I just going to go along with the crowd, or am I going to stand for what I know to stand for? Young people in the room, this is something that's even going to be more profound for you. You've got a lot more life ahead of you than some of us in this room. And those questions, those pushes from the world are going to become ever more greater against you. Where the world is going to say, oh, you don't want to do what the Bible says. You just want to follow and do what the world says. Right? Everybody else is doing it. You don't want to be the outsider. You don't want to be the outcast. You don't want to be the one who stands alone. But we have to remember that worship is not about what it does for us. Worship is about glorifying and exalting and giving God what he deserves. Worship is about honoring and worshiping him. So all these people, imagine with it, just picture it in your mind, this 90-foot tall gold statue, all these people bowed down before it. And the threat, knowing the threat, right, that whoever doesn't, be thrown into a furnace a blazing fire. So we see this improper degree that Nebuchadnezzar gives. And secondly, I want you to notice that there is a jealous accusation. Look at verse 8. Now, we're moving just very rapid pace here, right? So all of this happens, the people bow down, the worship happens, this event, this big celebration of this establishment of this new world religion that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to establish here. Verse 8, he says, for this reason, At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. So there's a group of advisors. These were probably the astrologers who were mentioned earlier in chapter 2 when they could not answer the king's decree of interpreting his dreams. They come and they bring a charge against the Jews. Now, what Jews are we talking about? Well, they answer that just later. It's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what's interesting about the phrasing here is that word brought charges means to, to tear to pieces. Uh, their desire here is to destroy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are so angry, so hateful towards these three young men that they want to do whatever they can to destroy them, which leads us to the natural question, why? Well, why are they so angry at these three young men? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Why? I think the first is jealousy. Right? Because in chapter 2, they had been unable to interpret the king's dream. And yet Daniel came in, and Daniel was friends with these three men. He had helped to establish them further in the kingdom of Babylon. He came in, and he interpreted the king's dream when they could not. He made a fool of them, and so now they were going to seek their revenge in whatever way possible. Chapter 1 tells us that these three young men alongside of Daniel, as they grew up in the king's court, they were wiser than all the other wise men in Babylon, and they didn't like it. You can only imagine that they knew they knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew of their commitment to the Lord, right? Because they lived that out in their life. Everywhere they went, they, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not just followers of God on the Sabbath day. They were followers of God every single day of the week. And so every part of their lives was touched by their faith and trust in a sovereign God. And so these Chaldeans, these astrologers, these other wise men had witnessed this. They knew that. And the one thing they knew when Nebuchadnezzar made this decree When he said, everyone must fall down and worship, in the back of their minds, they knew those three guys aren't going to do it. They're, They're not going to do it. We know what their faith is like, and they're not going to be willing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Now, we can surmise and assume that perhaps they positioned themselves near Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when all this was taking place so that they could watch for themselves what would happen. So they come to the king, and they said, Oh, king, live forever. Right? They're really trying to butter him up now. They come in and say, Oh, king, live forever. You, What a wonderful king you are, and, and king, in your wiseness, you have made this decree that at the sound of the music, everyone is to fall down and worship the golden image, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a blazing fire. Remember, king? Remember, remember what you said, that if anyone didn't bow down, they're to be cast into the fire. Verse 12, he says, there are certain Jews. He move appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, the first question you may ask is, why not Daniel? Why isn't Daniel mentioned in this passage? And scholars are have various assumptions of why this is. One is perhaps because he's had such a high position in the kingdom uh, that these men were afraid to bring an accusation against Daniel. They knew how closely connected he was with Nebuchadnezzar, and so they were afraid that if they tried to lump Daniel in with him or with these other men, that they knew that it would go badly for them. Or perhaps it was that Daniel was not even there. Uh, that he was out on doing some business for the king and was not present. We, we don't know why Daniel's not mentioned here. But they bring an accusation against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, notice the accusation that's made here. Right? They have disregarded you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. They are disrespecting you, O king. Basically, what this would be akin to is, is committing treason. Right, Because the king has established this is the new way. This is the new system. This is the new authority. And if you do not do it, and you are being treasonous to the kingdom of Babylon. So their desire is to enrage the king as much as they can. But three men out of all of these nations gathered together. Three men were the only ones who stood up. The only ones who didn't bow down only three. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 13, it says, in his rage, he gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the king. So these Chaldeans were jealous. And so in their desire, they pushed the king to anger, and they knew they could get him there. They had served alongside of him long enough. They knew all they had to do was to push the right buttons. And when you have a megalomaniac for a king, when you have one who's driven by power, the only thing you have to do is say, king, they just don't respect you enough. They don't respect you. They don't want to pay homage and authority to who you are. And immediately that was enough to set Nebuchadnezzar off. And so they're brought before the king to give an account. In verse 14, I want you to notice this threat that Nebuchadnezzar gives to them verse 14 is interesting because Nebuchadnezzar does give them a second opportunity. He doesn't just immediately cast them into the fire. We can assume that this was because of the position that they had. But again, clearly this is the hand of the sovereignty of God. Because what's getting ready to happen in the next part of these verses as these statements are made is a clear demonstration that God has given to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand up in a very powerful and authoritative way, and to declare again before Nebuchadnezzar the truth of who the real God of the world is. And they would not have had this opportunity had they acquiesced and just bowed down, right? Nobody would have known, right? Nobody would have seen it. They would have just assumed, oh, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're just doing what they should do. I'm attempting not to sidetrack this morning into a discussion on governmental authority and the response of a Christian. But we may get there anyway in a minute. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should, could have just bowed down. And perhaps there were probably those standing around them, or sitting or kneeling around them as they stood and said, guys, listen, it's not that big of a deal. right? You're not denying that God exists. You're not saying anything. Just bow down so that everything will be okay. There were other Jews there in Babylon alongside of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what are they doing? They're bowing down and worshiping the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And they're saying to them, guys, you're going to make it really hard on us. If you guys don't just bow down, it's going to be even harder for us as Jews here in Babylon because you guys are causing a problem. Just bow down. But Nebuchadnezzar calls them in and he asks them directly, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up. Now, he doesn't give them an opportunity to answer, interestingly enough. He just moves right into verse 15. Because he's really not concerned about whether they did or did not. Now he's going to make them prove it before him. He says, now if you're ready, when I play the music again, to fall down and worship the image I've made very well. But if you do not, you'll be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. The mindset of Nebuchadnezzar is seen here because at the end of that verse, look at the end of verse 15. He says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar already saw himself as a God. Because he's saying, my power is so great that if I say you're going to be cast into the furnace, what God is there who can deliver you out of my power and my authority? Who could do it? Well, we know the answer to that question. We know who could do it and who was going to do it. But in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, his authority and power was already so great that there was no other God on the earth or in the universe that could overcome his power and authority. This just puts us in the mindset of where Nebuchadnezzar is. This is how deceitful and how deluded he is in his own mind. That he thinks that just by his word, by his power, that there's no other God on the face of the earth that can overcome him. I want you to notice the faithful response that's given to us in verses 16 through 18. And this is such a wonderful passage of Scripture. Think about these three young men. Most assume that by this time they would have been around the ages of between 16 and 20 years old. Some of you in this room are close to this age. I want you to imagine at your age being called before the king of Babylon, this great king Nebuchadnezzar who rules most of the world at this time. All power in the world and authority has been given to him to do what he desires to do. And they're standing here and he's telling them, you either bow down and worship me or you'll be cast into the fiery furnace. And look at their response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Some translations say that we are not careful in giving you an answer. And what this means here is that, Nebuchadnezzar, there's, there's no answer, there's no debate that needs to happen here. We're not going to try to convince you of why we should or should not worship. We don't need to give you an answer because we've already decided what we're going to do. They were ready with their response. They didn't ask for more time. They didn't confer with one another. They stood boldly and said, we know what we're going to do. We're going to stand upon the promise and the faith and our trust in God. And we know that he will deliver us one way or the other. They were prepared before the test came to give their answer. And this is something that we need to remember. We need to remember that there are going to be times in our life where we are tested and we are tried and we are tempted. We're going to be tempted to disobey what God has clearly commanded us to do. We're going to be tempted to either stand for God or to acquiesce to the world. And if we wait until that moment happens, until we decide what we're going to do, chances are more likely that we will do the wrong thing instead of doing the right thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could stand with boldness here because they had already decided, they had already confirmed in their life that whenever we are given the opportunity, whenever we're pushed comes to shove, whenever we're pushed back against a wall, we're always going to do what God has commanded us to do, despite what may happen to us. There was no other option in their minds. They were not going to disobey God. They were going to honor Him in everything. They were going to honor His command. Now, the Scripture tells us Remember what what God said in the Old Testament? He said, you shall not make an idol. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall obey me and serve me and do what I've commanded you to do. And they understood this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew there was only one God who deserved to be worshipped and they were not going to give his glory to anything or anyone else. They trusted in the providence and the sovereignty of God. They said, we don't need to give any answer concerning this matter. This phrasing reminds us a lot of what we see in Acts chapter 5. But Peter and the apostle answered, we must obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 4. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, what is right is in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. These three young men knew there was only one answer to Nebuchadnezzar. And that was no. We will not bow down. We will not worship your golden image. We will not give what belongs only to God to you. Now, verse 17 and 18 seem to be, in some translations, the way it's worded, and sometimes when people read this, they're, they're, it seems that perhaps they're doubting the good, the 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 ability of God, because as it says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he does not, let it be known to you we're not going to serve your gods or worship the image you've set up. It's not here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doubt the ability or the power of God. They completely trusted in God's providence and his sovereignty, but they did not presume upon them. They did not presume upon God's providence and sovereignty. And what I mean by that is they knew that God could deliver them out of this fiery furnace. They knew that he had the complete power and the authority and the wherewithal to do so, if that was his purpose. But they also knew that if God desired for them to go to the fiery furnace and perish inside of it, that it was no less a demonstration of God's providence and power. Because God does not always deliver out of the fiery furnace. Sometimes he causes people to go to the furnace and to die there. We've seen Christians who have been martyred in the flames. We've been seen Christians who have been, who have been murdered in their own homes. We've seen Christians who have lost their lives doing what God had called them to do. And they were no less faithful, and it was no less a demonstration of God's power than for God to deliver these three men out of the furnace and bring them safely out on the other side. This is what they are saying here. They're saying, we know that God has the power to deliver us. But even if he does not, if that's not what God's plan is in this moment, we're still not going to worship your gods or to worship this image. As human beings, oftentimes we look at something like this and we'd say, oh, well, you know, if if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had gone into the furnace and died there, perhaps they missed the direction of God, right? Because they, they were so bold and so confirmed in their stand, and yet they went in and died in the furnace. No, my friends. We have to trust that God's plan is perfect. Sometimes He brings us out the other side and sometimes He doesn't. But that does not change who He is and it does not change His sovereignty in the fact that He has worked all things out according to His plan and purpose. He will do what He desires to do. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even if we die, we're still going to be obedient to God. And He's still going to be good and He's still going to be faithful. This is the trust that these three young men had. They had such a trust, a faithful resolve. You remember in the earlier chapters, it talked that they had resolved earlier that they would not serve the gods of Babylon, but only serve the God of Israel. So here these three men are standing before this great king, knowing what's coming. They know what's happening next. Right? There's no question in their minds. It's not a question of doubt of whether they're going to the furnace or not. They know they're going to the furnace. But they're still willing to stand firm upon the truth of God's Word. I want you to notice next the tyrant's fury. Nebuchadnezzar obviously was not happy with what was being said to him. He was not happy with what these three young men were declaring back to him. And in fact, the Scripture tells us there in verse 19 that his facial expression was altered. Have you ever been around someone who's so angry you can see it viscerally on them? You can see the anger in their eyes and in their mouth, the clenching of the teeth, you know, the red-faced kind of anger. This is what we see Nebuchadnezzar. He, His anger is filled to overflowing. So much so that notice what it says there in verse 19. He's so angry that he commands that the furnace is heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, this furnace uh, would have been either dug into an embankment or sometimes they were built structures. But what it would have is an opening at the bottom where the wood and things could be thrown in to heat up the furnace. And it was big enough that you could see inside. And then at the top, there would be a hole cut. And that hole obviously was to let heat and smoke out, but also that's where they would throw people down when they did this kind of punishment. This type of punishment was not unusual among the Babylonians and amongst the other um, uh, relig- uh, world systems at this time. So Nebuchadnezzar is so angry that he commands the fire to be heated seven times greater than it normally is. He, he calls it to be heated up and to, and to make hotter because he wants to punish them even more. This is his anger. So he commands his strongest men, verse 20, to tie them up and to cast them into this furnace of blazing fire. Verse 21 tells us that they were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Daniel includes this because it speaks to the the severity and to the quickness of how all this took place. Um, Most of the time, people who were thrown into the fire would be stripped of all their garments and just thrown in. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar was causing this to happen so quickly that these men were just bound as they stood there in their clothes. They were literally being dragged from the court of Nebuchadnezzar out to the furnace. Verse 22, it says, For this reason the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot. Now notice this, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fire was so intense, the heat was so intense that these strongmen, these are some of the strongest soldiers that Nebuchadnezzar has, that as they're taking up these three men to throw them into the furnace, the heat is so intense that it instantly kills them as they throw these three young men into the furnace. Now notice verse 23, because there's something we need to notice here that seems would be something we would often read past. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Remember those three words there at the end of verse 23, still tied up. Now I don't know about you, but if I had a list of ways of which I don't desire to die, it would be by being burned to death which is somewhat odd for somebody who used to be on the fire department. But I've been in a really hot fire. I've been in a situation where the fire was so hot that it was literally burning through the protective clothes that we wear when we'd go inside a burning building. I know what that feels like. Now, to imagine a fire that's so hot that it kills the men who just walk up to the edge of the furnace to throw these men in, this is a hot fire. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with all of their clothes still on, are thrown into the midst of this fire, still bound together. They can't walk. They can't get up. They're tied and bound. But I want you to notice here the testimony of power. Look at verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting there, and he's watching all this take place. He's watching in through that hole in the furnace as he's sitting there, and he's, he's watching to see his power demonstrated, right? He had the power to erect this image. He had the power to demand that people worship him. He had the power to throw these three young men into the furnace, and now he's going to watch his power demonstrated as the flames consume them, and he is established as this great power. But look at verse 24. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and said to his high officials, Was it not three men that we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king. So as Nebuchadnezzar is staring there, all of a sudden he, he jumps to his feet, right? And he runs over and we can imagine him peering into that furnace and maybe trying to shield his eyes to see what's going on. And he begins to say, Wait a minute. Hey, guys, wait a minute. Didn't we just put three guys in there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three three men went into the furnace, correct? And they said, oh, yes, O king. Verse 25, he says, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar sees four men walking around inside of the furnace. And notice there, remember those three words I told you to remember, verse 23, still tied up? Notice he says, I see four men who are loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he sees an extra man inside the fire. He sees all four of them up and walking around just like they're having a casual conversation. Often wondered what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego talked about as they're standing inside the midst of this fiery furnace. But he says they're walking around without harm. He looks in expecting to see the burning bodies of these three young men laying in a heap at the bottom of this furnace. Instead, he sees not yet three, but four people walking around like nothing's wrong. The fire is blazing. The furnace is raging. And yet here are these four men walking around. And he says the fourth has an appearance like a son of the God's. He says the fourth has some kind of supernatural appearance. Now, who was this fourth person? You know, some people say that it was perhaps an angel. I tend to follow along the line of, of, the, of the reformers and the early church fathers to say that this was a, what we call a Christophany. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. There are times in the Old Testament where Jesus appeared before he came to earth and took upon human flesh. I believe this is one of those moments. Why? Because... It is a clear fulfillment of different parts of Scripture and, I believe, a promise of what Jesus said He was going to do when He came. Earlier, Jerry read for us the passage there from Isaiah chapter 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you pass through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Notice God's promise there in Isaiah. It's not that when you get to the waters, I will take you around them. Or when you get to the fire, I will put it out. Or when you get to the river, it will recede. No, he says, when you go through the water, they will not overflow you. When you go through the fire, you will not be scorched and you will not be burned. God is not promising here an, an aversion of problems and difficulty in our life. What he's promising here is that when we have difficulty, that he will carry us through to the other side. He will take us to the other side. So there's this beautiful promise here of what Jesus is going to come and to do. Because you remember what the scripture says in Matthew chapter one. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. When you pass through the fire, I will be with you. And the flames, they will not overcome you. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus here, the pre-incarnate Jesus, was with these three young men in the midst of the fiery furnace. Jesus has come, and He is now with us. Brothers and sisters, what a beautiful promise. When we face the trials and difficulties of this life, God is with us. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 28? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That, that with you always is not just saying, I'm, he's not just saying that to make us feel good. He's saying that because that's a promise. That he is with us at all times, in all places, in all circumstances, for all time. God has promised that he would be with us. And he was with these three young men inside the midst of this fiery furnace. What a beautiful demonstration of His power and of His promise. And really this hearkening of what God was going to come to do. Jesus was going to take on human flesh. He was going to be God with us so that He could go to the cross. Take upon Himself our sinfulness. And restore our relationship back to God. Nebuchadnezzar calls to the door of the furnace and he calls them out. He says, come out of here. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of here, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And they came out of the midst of the fire. Notice what it tells us in verse 27. It says, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was a hair on their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, or even had the smell of fire come upon them. I can't sit by a campfire for more than three seconds and not smell like smoke. And yet these young men were in the midst of this furnace with the fire raging. And the power of God was such that he, again, he didn't escape them out of it by not having them go through it. But he brought them through the fire to the midst of the other side. And what did that passage say in, verse, in chapter 43 of Isaiah? When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And what did they say about these young men here? The fire had no effect on their bodies. Their hair was not singed, their trousers were not damaged, and not even the smell of fire was upon them. No doubt here an event had happened. And he gathers all these political leaders around, and astonishingly they look and see that nothing has happened to these young men. Now in this moment we'd think, well surely Nebuchadnezzar will recognize the truth and the authority of who God is. And notice what verse 28 tells us. It says, he responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to service or worship any god except their own god. Now at face value, this almost looks like a, an amazing decree from Nebuchadnezzar, right? But it's still not yet a moment of conversion for him because I want you to notice what he says there in verse 28. He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think there's some phrasing there because he's not saying that yet it's the only God. What he is saying here is that we need to recognize that this God whom they serve is just another God that we should add to our list of deities that we respect. Because in verse 29, he makes a decree. That any people, nation, tongue or tribe that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish, insomuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Nebuchadnezzar was not confirming that God was the only God, but just that he was another God to be added to the list. And we know this because the continuing chapters replay to us that Nebuchadnezzar had yet not recognized the true authority of who God was. What Nebuchadnezzar was doing here was responding to an emotional experience, responding to a miraculous occurrence in the sense of saying, oh, well, that's nice for you guys, and I hope that it works for you, but I'm still going to continue to do what I desire to do. And oftentimes we face that. There will be people who will see the work of God in someone else's life, and they'll say, oh, well, what a wonderful thing that God did that for you. They recognize it as something that only God could do. But it does not cause them to serve God. It does not cause them to humble them hard. It does not cause them to repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ. We rejoice in the fact that God's name was not to be blasphemed anymore, but Nebuchadnezzar would still continue to blaspheme God's name because any time that we just try to add God to the list of the other gods that we have, we're blaspheming His name. Anytime that we try to serve anything else outside of God, we're blaspheming His name because He is the only one who is deserving of praise, honor, and glory. Finally, I want you to see that God again rewarded the faithfulness of these young men. It's interesting because we see what seemingly is a a disagreement with what we think of how things would happen. Oftentimes we think that serving God will cause us great difficulty and it will cause us to decrease in the world. But what we find happening here in the book of Daniel is that these faithless young men causes them to walk through gate difficulty, which God brings them through, but yet he keeps rewarding them on the other side, even still in this world, because he still allows their position to grow and to increase. Why? Because God is doing this because it's all part of his plan. God is going to use these young men to continue to accomplish his purpose for his people in the midst of a broken and a dying and a wicked world. And brothers and sisters, God will do the same thing through us if we submit ourselves to Him. If we will be faithful to Him, God desires for us to use where we are to accomplish His plan and purposes in this world. It doesn't matter what your your background is, what your education is, what your occupation is. When we submit ourselves to the authority and the providence and the sovereignty of God, God will use us to accomplish His plans and purposes in this life. I want to close this morning with a quote from um, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. He says, God does go with his people in their trials. Countless believers have testified to that. So let us be confident in the promise of that presence and be strong. Let us stand for the right and do it. Let us refuse to compromise. Let us stand with unbowed heads and rigid backbones before the golden statues of our godless materialistic culture. Let us stand there and depend upon a God to be served and as a race to be won. Thanks be to God that His providence and sovereignty is still in operation in our lives. We look back and we see the hope of Daniel and we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These young men who were not strong in their own might, not strong in their own power and their own authority, but were strong and confident because they trusted in the power and the sovereignty of God. May it be so with us. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we do ask that you would help us. We are weak, we are frail, and we are completely dependent upon you. Lord, we would be foolish to think that in our own power and ability that we can do anything. But Lord, we know that in your power and in your authority, we can do anything. Because you have called us. You have called us by name and you're yours. Lord, help us to submit and to humble ourselves before you. Lord, give us the strength that we need. Lord, this world often comes against us in many different ways. Father, sometimes in subtle ways, in private ways, it tempts us to disobey you and tempts us to turn from you. In moments where only you see, we pray, God, that you would help us to stand strong and to do what you've called us to do. Father, sometimes in more public ways, we are called to a moment where we will either honor you and be faithful to your word, or we will dishonor you and be disobedient. Father, help us to stand strong. Lord, despite what might happen to our livelihood, to our reputation, to our influence, and Father, even to our own life, Lord, may we be willing to stand firm upon the truth of your word. May we be willing to stand firm upon your power and your authority. Lord, may we be willing to say, I will never bow down and worship the gods of this world. Because only you deserve to be worshipped. Only you deserve our praise and honor and glory. Father, help us. We are weak and we are so in need of your help. But Father, we know and trust that when we ask, that you give us the help that we need. Lord, may we depend upon you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.